three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jesus. some of these people. I just, Put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? All right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, also known as hamalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits, live from Washington, D.C., America, USA, North America, world. I have an exciting episode in store for all of you where we're going to explore questions, including all we do is consume, consume, consume. We binge food and alcohol, movies on Netflix and content on Instagram. Does anyone create anything anymore? Plus, why in the last few decades we've seen a drastic decrease in human innovation in spite of the well-known advances like the computer and the iPhone? And why we need better incentives than patents to get people to innovate? And what are the most overrated movies that I've seen in my lifetime? And what are my picks for Oscar winner in 2020? All that and so much more on this brand new episode of... Nervous Habits. How's everybody doing? I hope everyone's having a wonderful uh, day and week and month and, and start to your year as you're listening to this podcast um, at the gym or I always say the gym. <laughs> it's the first one that comes to mind. Um, you know, folding laundry, walking down the street. Maybe you're on the subway. Maybe you're cooking dinner, what have you. Uh, Thanks for, you know, joining me on this Nervous Habits um, <laughs> journey. I'm, I'm in a pretty good mood today, having a wonderful weekend um, here as I record this in the past. Uh, <laughs> um, just some housekeeping to get to, guys. Uh, keep sending those emails to nervousheavispodcast.gmail.com, nervousheavispodcast.gmail.com with feedback, suggestions, questions on the pod. Um, if you, you know, have strong opinions, weak opinions, mild opinions on things that I've discussed, things that, you know, you want to hear more about or hear less about, feel free to, to send them via email. Uh, there, you go, there you go, yawning again um, as I record this at um, 8 p.m. on a Sunday night. Uh, we're also on Twitter. Um, at nervous habits underscore on Facebook. Actually, we're not on Facebook, believe it or not. Um, I don't think podcasts have Facebook pages, but we are on Instagram at nervous habits podcast and on YouTube. Just search nervous habits podcast. I'm meaning to get more clips on YouTube. It's just hard to manage time. Um, man, maybe I should get mold around the idea of getting an intern for the pod. Um, but don't really have the, uh, you know, haven't. I haven't taken the initiative to explore what the process might look like. But if you are a young person interested in building your career <laughs> in um, media or you know uh, entertainment, I mean, I, I'm not actively soliciting, uh, looking for interns. But hey, you know, if you wanna if you wanna help out, get involved with the podcast. You know, uh, you know how to reach me. Nervousheadspodcast at gmail um, Anyway, so like I said. As I sit here and record this, it is a Sunday evening. I am in the midst of my meal prep, so I might have to duck out um, for a moment to check on the water I have boiling and the uh, chicken breasts in the oven. But before we do that, before I do that, because you guys aren't helping me boil this water or, or grill the chicken, maybe the intern can, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I do want to you know, dive into this conversation on the culture of consumption. And this is something that I've alluded to in so many episodes on the pod. And I do want to preface this by saying this is not an exclusively American problem. I do think that in the Western world in 2020, very few of us actually create anything anymore. You know, thanks to social media and streaming services and the accessibility and the ease at which we can access information and interface with one another uh, on computers and cell phones and iPads, whenever we have free time, whether that be a minute, an hour, or a day, most of us spend that time consuming. You know, we consume words written by others on Twitter or photos published by others on Instagram, on the endless news feed that we're scrolling through half the time, you know, semi-consciously, or movies on Netflix or video games or television shows. We consume. And I do want to make clear what I mean when I say consume because that's really... At, at the crux of the discussion that I want to have. I want to make sure there's no ambiguity. By consume, I don't mean necessarily mean eat or drink or ingest, which most people think of when they 
um, you know, when they hear consume. Consuming for me means more absorbing or passively taking in as opposed to the antonym, which would be creating, um, actively, you know, making something out of absolutely nothing, you know, from scratch. And in the modern world, how many of us will take that free time, the, you know, five minutes um, where we have a moment to catch our breath at work or the hour before bed where we haven't allocated it to a specific activity? How many of us take that chunk of free time and use it to create something? And I feel like now more than ever, we are at a crossroads with and, and, and I'm going to talk about this on the macro level, like society-wide and also the micro level, individual-wide. But at least macro, on the macro level, with so few of us producing, maybe just to kind of ballpark this, one less than 1% producers, the rest of us are consumers. So that's not a great ratio. And if you've ever seen WALL-E, you know that one dystopian view of the human race in 100 years from the movie is essentially a society of people that are too overweight to get out of their chairs who are mindlessly consuming media on a screen while glued to their armchair and being wheeled around. People are too out of shape to walk, completely controlled by machines. And it's a disturbing imagery and most people most people, you know, if you haven't seen Wally by the way, go watch it, but most people, you know, will see that and they'll think, oh, we're never going to be like that. We're bipeds. We're always going to be standing. We're not going to be confined to wheelchairs, mindlessly consuming information. I don't know, you guys. You know, we're not that different from, as of now, the, you know, the blobs in, in wheelchairs portrayed in movies like that. Because if you walk into any cafe or, you know, any subway car, that's what we're doing, right? And, and I'm, you know, this isn't going to be another episode on on, you know, cell phone and technology use because I, I, I don't you know I want the content of nervous habits to be fresh. I don't want to just be repeating myself. I want to present you with new information, new literature, new studies, new research, new books, what have you. But I definitely think that consumption, taking in information, is higher now than it's been ever before. And at least part of resisting that has to do with reflecting. And and in 2020, my New Year's resolution was to spend more time every day reflecting. And I talked about in the memory episode, um, back in episode 26, why it's important to, you know, return to and rehearse your memories so you don't lose them. You don't necessarily need to, to actively meditate for an hour, um, although that, to be honest with you, I, I would definitely do that if I had the patience, the self-discipline, and the time, obviously. But it's fine just to sit around every day and just think. Because as I said before, if you don't think about time, it'll pass. And before you know it, you're going to be 30 years old wondering what happened to the last 10 years, you know, or you know, 18 years old wondering what happened in your childhood. And a few episodes ago, when I talked about memory, I mentioned that, I mentioned like metaphysically the futility of time if we don't actually have that, if we don't actually designate time for reflection. And I think that if we were to chart the average, if we look at a pie chart of the average attentional, what we pay attention to throughout the course of a day, I would bet most people are in the future, right? Thinking about what will come and very of us are, very few of us are, are living in the present or in the past. And, you know, I would argue being, living too much in the past is not ideal because, you know, you're, yes, you're remembering things that are important, but you're almost you know, we talked about nostalgia and rosy retrospection. You're almost obsessively trying to, especially, you know, if you're like me and you have OCD, you're ruminating over things that happen, ruminating over conversations or experiences. Present thinking is probably ideal. This is this is mindfulness. This is, um, which I don't know if I've ever fleshed out in full on the pod, but it's just the idea. There's so much written on it where, you know, you take a piece of cl- touch of chocolate, you close your eyes and you allow yourself to taste the the, you know, all the different flavors and like moment to moment, what that chocolate feels like as as your as your body is making sense of the sensory experience. You can do that with walking, with breathing, with taking a shower, just letting all of the conscious thoughts go away and just living in that sensory experience. So mindfulness and present thinking is ideal. 
And I know that when I talk about consumption and production, you guys are probably imagining that production means sitting in a room with an easel on a canvas and you know painting something or building something, right? Right? Maybe you're imagining making a birdhouse. You know, production can mean these things, but at its simple at its simplest form, all production means is is doing something with. I mean, it doesn't have to be with your hands. It is as I, as I alluded to earlier is making something out of nothing. Production can mean writing. It can mean sewing. sewing. Um, it can mean cooking. It can also mean reliving the past because that does involve the process of memory rehearsal, which is essential to keeping memories. And let me give you an example of this. This is kind of an extreme form, but you know, a few months ago, I was talking to my friend on the phone and I asked him what he did over the weekend. Um, and he told me with 100% seriousness, there was not a hint of sarcasm in his voice. He said that he lied in bed and he tried to remember every detail of his life from birth. At the time, I was like, dude, are you kidding me? Why didn't you just, you know, uh, rewatch Westworld on Netflix or something? Or rather, HBO Go. Um, but then, after thinking about it, spending six hours a day reliving your life is way more beneficial than spending it binging a TV show, right? Because if you think about it, when you're consuming, all you're doing is you're taking your time, you're putting it in a box, and you're burning it. You're burying it. You're leaving yourself no better off at 8 p.m. when you finish than at 2 p.m. when you started. And this is my biggest problem with TV and a lot of film and YouTube video these days is, yeah, they're very entertaining in the moment, Essentially, they're they're not leaving you. They're not bettering you. You didn't. You don't accomplish anything, right? And and this mentality, it's not all or nothing, right? Like sometimes after a long day, you do want to relax and unwind. I remember when I worked at a law firm as a paralegal for a couple of years. I would work, you know, nine a.m. to two a.m. sometimes, and I, I would come home at two a.m. and I wanted to take an hour to watch a TV show or you know to 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 play a video game, whatever, because I needed to do something to let my mind unwind and relax before bed. Um, but, but you know, most people aren't taking one hour out of 24 hours to do these things. Most people are, are spending an entire day, you know. And, and this, by the way, this doesn't apply to, to all forms of, cons- of consumption. I would argue that documentaries, for example, are different because you do learn something. You, you know, you, you, you see life, if, you know, f- f- with a new set of lenses. Um, you pick up some cool facts to share with your friends. But I'm really just talking about those people who watch an entire series of a mindless drama or horror show, who are addicted to the consumption and spend 12 hours sitting on their couches staring at their screen, uh, staring at their screens. Where does it stop? H- hold that thought. It stop it stops right now for a moment so I can check this boiling water. All right, we're in business. The water's not fully boiled. We're about, we're about 50% boiled. Um and I don't know. It, it's Again, if you take this this concept to its logical extreme, you're not going to have any happiness or joy in your life because every day needs to be filled with productivity. And this is, you know, to some degree, this is my dad rubbing off on me a little bit because whenever I'm home from, whenever I was home from college for a break, or even in law school, I was home for a break a couple months ago. At the end of the day, my dad would kind of come in the room and be like, "Hey, you know, what did you accomplish today?" That that was always what he said. What did you accomplish? And a lot of the time, I had done nothing. I, you know, watched TV just like all you guys or um, or just played on my phone for way longer than I should have. And I kind of felt ashamed to tell my dad, oh, I accomplished absolutely nothing today. But to be honest, I think he kind of has the right idea. Like if every single day you go to bed and you can't name one thing that you've done, one way that you've improved, one thing that you've made or created or then that day really didn't amount to anything. You know, I, I have a quote on my wall. I mean, I have a lot of quotes on my wall. <laughs> um, but it says, do something today that your future self will thank you for. And I don't think that means, you know, rewatching season five of Game of Thrones um, or spending four hours on Instagram, you know, reading about the Vanderpump Rules or, or whatever, <laughs> or even The Bachelor as much as I indulge in that show. So I, I do think it's worth thinking about. And I want to reiterate something that I said in episode 19, just in case you didn't listen. 
um, when I talked about cell phone addiction, it's really not your fault because some of the foremost psychologists and neuroscience neuroscientists work for these companies like Netflix and Hulu and they are actively researching what types of content are the most addictive and they're programming in behavioral addiction into their software. They're making it impossible for you to resist the allure of your show. Look at look at Netflix. When you finish an episode of a show, the next one automatically starts. And, you know, I've been talking about the micro level, like how does this affect each person? But let's talk macro. What is this going to do for society? Because Elon Musk said a few years ago, and, and I feel like I always go back to Elon Musk's, Elon Musk in these types of conversations, um, who's, you know, is a personal hero of mine. Um, and he said a couple years ago that he's worried about the human race. And it wasn't for any of the reasons that people talk about. It wasn't for, you know, war or climate change or any long-term, you know, uh, sociopolitical instability. He was worried that the next Steve Jobs or Bill Gates will have his head too buried in a cell phone or watching Disney Plus that he'll miss the chance to invent the next Windows or the next, for lack of a better example, iPhone. And believe me, the irony is not lost on me that I'm comparing the inventor of the next addictive technological device that would preclude the innovation itself to the devices that generated his or her addiction in the first place. I, I Actually, that, that's pretty confusing. What I'm trying to say is it's like I understand it's ironic that I'm saying that we are so addicted to devices like the iPhone that the next inventor of the iPhone won't be able to invent the iPhone. It's very, it's very circular. But it's true. I mean when Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates grew up, Kids play, you know. Kids did crossword puzzles, and you know, kids went outside. Um, kids talked to each other, and now people can consume. So, Elon Musk makes a valid point. If everyone's consuming all the time, who's going to be brave enough to look away from their phone and produce, to make something, to innovate, to experiment, to be creative? And on a macro level, the science backs up Elon Musk's point. When we look at innovation trends over the last couple of years. And in an article published by the Harvard Review back in March of 2017, the authors actually detailed the study looking at research and development, uh, which is the necessary first stage towards developing any innovation uh, and productivity in the U.S. from 1975 to 2015, so over the span of four decades. And what the study found was that despite the importance of innovation to companies, um, despite the amount that companies were investing in broader innovation, as well as the economy in general, despite the 250% rise in the number of scientists and engineers engaged in R&D and, and research and development, and despite all the experts dedicated to helping companies innovate, the money that companies spend on R&D was producing, uh, producing fewer and fewer results. So the research shows that the returns to the company's R&D spending have declined 65% over the past three decades. So you're probably wondering, first of all, what does that mean? Essentially, these companies are spending more and more on on creating the next big innovation, the next invention, the next frontier, and they're getting 65% less return on their investment. They're just not getting the innovations that um, they wanted to, even with more resources. So why is this the case? Why are companies and to uh, you know an- another extent individuals innovating less now than you know 40 years ago. One possible explanation is that R&D has gotten harder and consequently you have less innovation. And there are a couple of reasons why uh, R&D and innovation have uh, decreased. The first one is, is actually called the fishing out effect or the cherry picking effect. And it's the notion that the most obvious ideas are discovered first so that the quality of remaining ideas degrades over time. So take the idea for the iPhone created in 2007. I wouldn't say that the discovery of the iPhone was obvious at all, but it was a transformative invention. And now that you have this device that enables you to speak to anyone or text or use apps or search the internet, subsequent innovations won't be nearly as groundbreaking because of the iPhone's nature. This is essentially the cherry picking uh, effect. Once you have the most obvious idea discovered first, everything that comes after that will be degrading quality. So that's one reason why you see less innovation um, in, you know, uh, less overall innovation um, in 2020. The second reason why R&D has gotten harder and why we're seeing less and less innovation um, is diminishing returns to research labor. And 
the concept of the diminishing returns, if you haven't taken like an economics class, is is that there is a point at which the level of profits or benefits gained is less than the amount of money or energy invested. So eventually, the essentially there's a point after which more of more input does not generate more output. So for example, if you have a factory that employs workers to manufacture its products, um, and they hire more and more workers to get more and more product. Uh, you know, more, more and more productivity. Eventually, there's a point at which the factory is going to operate at an optimal level, and it's not going to be necessary for them to bring more people. And more people could actually um, diminish their returns. So that's the law of diminishing returns. And as I said before, the reason why we're seeing less innovation is you have diminishing returns to research labor. So this is the idea, as I just said with the factory, that adding more researchers will decrease the number of innovations per worker because it increases the likelihood that researchers are dupl- duplicating one another's efforts. Okay, Because you think that if you have 200 researchers at a company instead of 100, you're going to have twice as many innovations, or maybe not twice as many, but substantially more. But that's not the way it works. Um, and... You know, there was a great book I read a few months back, uh, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, uh, where Northwestern uh, economist Robert Gordon kind of laid out this argument. And he essentially said that the expansion of American industry has been counterproductive because more people has meant fewer rather than more innovations because there are transactional costs here as well. If you do hire more people, then you're going to have to have more space and more resources for them as well. So the company's not necessarily um, you know, growing or, or producing or benefiting um, because of the diminishing returns there. So that's another reason why you're seeing less and less innovation in 2020, despite the fact that corporations are bigger than ever. And another extremely important reason why we have less innovation is that there's just no incentives to innovate. And this, this kind of ties nicely to you know the, the whole discussion of the culture of consumption that, that I mentioned at the outset. People just don't feel like they need to, you know, they don't feel driven to produce anymore, as I kind of said. And this is a nice opportunity for me to, maybe for the first time ever on the pod, kind of bring in some of what I've learned in law school. And specifically... I'm taking property this semester, and we've spent a good amount of time learning about intellectual property, IP, and patent law. And you know, if you're not uh, familiar with patents, a patent gives the patent holder uh, basically a monopoly over the use of his or her product. So if you have uh, a patent for you know a a specific food or um, a specific board game or you know software, um the patent would make it so that no one else can use your product. No one else can derive profits from that. So you're probably wondering, why are we allowing this in a capitalist economy? Why are we sanctioning essentially a state-created monopoly within the context of invention? Now, there's a couple reasons. And the first, as I said, is about incentivizing. We want to incentivize someone to create something. And without this monopoly, someone else could just come along, you know, once you've expended the R&D, once you've taken the time to develop the software, the computer game, someone else can come along, commandeer your product, um, or reverse engineer it from scratch, steal your idea, and start making money off of it. So the monopoly means that you have exclusive control over what the product is. So people are more incentivized, more motivated to actually innovate, to make something that they have power over. Another reason why we have um, these state-created monopolies is because they motivate competition. You know, people are racing to acquire a patent. I mean, the, the best example is in pharmaceuticals. You have companies, you know, competing to um, develop the next uh, drug to cure, you know, viral diseases or eventually, a, you know, cure for cancer. All that. That's a whole other discussion. And at some point, I would like to, you know, have have a, a, an episode about. Um, cancer and about pharmaceuticals because that's one of the interesting uh, you know terrains that we haven't explored. But the point is, pharma is a great example of, of you know how co- competition can bring out the the best innovations because you have these companies racing to be the first to acquire the patent. Another reason is what's called the first mover advantage: the idea that the first person to be in the market has an advantage over all later competitors. So you look at um, Coca-Cola, for example. Coca-Cola was was really the first, one of the first, if not the first, soft drink producers. Um, and because of that, you know, they, they spent decades building a brand for themselves, a trademark, a name in the field, um, and they have that first mover advantage. And other soft drinks, you know, pale in comparison um, because Coca-Cola has been so established and because they were the first. And another reason is because the... It has to do with the collective knowledge in terms of you know why we're allowing patents. 
Because the patent office requires that individuals actually disclose what their invention is, this leads to an increase in knowledge and information to other inventors. So as a result, in pharma, for example, you know, if, if a, a pharma company actually acquires a, a patent on their drug, other pharma companies will get to see the research and see you know, what, what went into it and able to, are able to build off of that to create future innovations. So it benefits not only other companies, but the public good as well, um, especially in that kind of context. And lastly, the last reason why we're allowing um, you know, patent holders to, to acquire this monopoly has to do with the Lockean perspective. And this is something we talked quite a bit about in the class. But it's, it's the mindset that when you cre- invent something out of nothing, when you combine something with your labor, take uh, you know, you know, a strip of land and you actually take the time to plant crops and to harvest, when you're actually putting that labor in, you should be entitled to the output, to the innovation. Um, so in, you know, the context of patents, that's most, that's true most of the time that when someone, you know, invests all the resources to develop an innovation, they should be entitled to that. But it's not always true because of course you have people who, you know, take years and years of their lives trying to working towards something, um, and it never comes to fruition and then they don't acquire a patent. They don't derive profits from it. So that one, that one is kind of a mixed bag, but you know, none of these reasons that I just laid out underlying patent law serves as an incentive for ordinary people to expend time and labor and resources developing an innovation. You know, let's say I have an idea for a new technology. Let's say it's a technology to that would enable you to massage the knots out of your neck, since that's a pretty big problem for me. And I have a few fleeting ideas, but the R&D required to polish the ideas entails a ton of time and money. I don't have the resources of a big corporation. You know, I don't have a, a significant trust fund. I'm just an ordinary guy. What would incentivize me to actually follow through with this idea? Sure, maybe I care about overall utility for mankind or, you know, I, I might be motivated to follow it out for the public good, but surely someone else is going to come along and, and invent it. You know, that's why so few people are, are you know, mobilized to research and, and think through solutions to, to climate change. It's, you know, the free rider problem. Uh, so, you know, someone else will, will, will take care of it. Diffusion of responsibility and pluralistic ignorance. And, you know, yeah, if I successfully carry out this product and I make the innovation, I can get a patent and all the money that comes with it. But man, that's going to take a long time. And there, are no, as I said before, there are no guarantees. I could end up spending years of my life developing a technology and getting nothing out of it. So you can see why we need more incentives for people to innovate outside of just patents and trademarks and copyrights. And the solution to this might be sort of political. Um, You know, it might be as simple as setting aside a few million dollars in the state or federal budget every year for ordinary people, lay people, to submit a brief abstract of an idea and then give them the resources they need to complete that. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, I, I know that they have similar mechanisms in place where you can submit, you know, $100 million research proposals. And of course, you know, you have to be established in your field, needs to be peer-reviewed paper, years of, of academia. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone could, could develop an idea that's like somewhat fleshed out, put it, you know, have a page abstract do a little bit of research, but not something that's going to take too much time, um, and submit it for review by this panel um, of people who allocate the funds for that. And obviously, the person wouldn't receive 100% ownership of it. It wouldn't be a patent. There would be some sort of proportionality where the person gets you know, 40 or 50% of the profits and 40 or 50% go to the, the government, and you know, the profits get funneled back into this, this fund. And again, I don't know if they have something like this. I feel like... I feel like this 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 almost sounds like in some of those utopian or dystopian books. I think this might have been The Giver or Brave New World. They had a similar council where they would review ideas um, for betterment of society. So it's you know maybe maybe this is far fetched. Um, maybe it's it's not pragmatic, but I do think there needs to be more incentive for people to take the time to think through innovations and. Beyond just mere innovations, there's still the issue that I mentioned at the outset, that society has made it so easy to consume that no one creates anymore. You know, when was the last time that you wrote a handwritten letter or you drew a picture or you did a crossword puzzle or, you know, you made origami or you built a birdhouse? Um, when I was a kid, um, I don't know if I ever mentioned this on the podcast before, I... Uh, 
I don't know even even know why, but I went into my garage. I took a bunch of old parts. Um, I took uh, a uh, an old office chair. I took the the um, it was like a swivel chair. I took the wheels off and the you know the body off. So I just kept the the seat itself and and the the armrests. And I attached it to a piece of I think it was plywood, and I added wheels to the plywood. I eventually made like a makeshift go kart. Um, it was it was actually kind of hilarious. I don't even know if I still have it, but um, I literally spent weeks, you know, attaching and gluing and and nailing in this this you know seat of a swivel chair to this piece of plywood and these four wheels. Then I painted it and you know added some cardboard and put my name on it and rolled it down the hill. Like how many how many of you guys have created something? And it starts with something very small, like reteaching your brain, you know, tying it back to the episode of memory, re, you know, strengthening that muscle memory, teaching your brain how to, how to write instead of type and, you know, how to, I mean, how many people knit anymore? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's painting, it's drawing, it's built, just do something to produce when you have a few minutes of free time. Um, because I'm telling you, you know, that, that Wally, that, that futuristic society of, you know, millions of people, billions of people who they're, they're just tethered to these, you know, wheelchairs rolling around mindlessly going about their daily lives. That that future is going to come upon us quicker than we think. And Elon Musk is, is right. Society's got bigger problems to worry about. So definitely worth kind of reevaluating um, how much time you devote to consumption and potentially looking to produce more in your daily life. Speaking of consumption, at the risk of sounding completely hypocritical because I just ranted for a half hour about how much I dislike consuming, I am a big movie guy. Of course, longtime listeners will remember that back in episode 14 with Ian, I focused on my list of the best movies that I've seen in the last decade, decade and a half, um, which has been carefully maintained and distributed amongst <laughs> my friends and family. And now I kind of want to give you the other side of it, which is the worst movies that I've seen um, in the last decade or so. And this can kind of be broken down into two categories. You have the most overrated films. So these are movies that were either critically acclaimed or universally admired by audiences, but I just didn't connect with. And just some, and then the second category is just some of the overall like lowest quality you know two hours two and a half hours i've ever devoted to anything in my life and you know in case you're you're new to the pod as i mentioned back when i talked about movies in episode 14 i when i watch movies i've kind of have a process generally before i see the film i'll watch the trailer to get a sense for you know what the movie's going to be about and whether or not i want to commit a couple hours of my time to it um and i also after the movie I generally like to read reviews on uh, IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, believe it or not, YouTube comments of the trailer are, are, are pretty good indications of whether or not the movie is going to be high quality. So I look at that as well. And then once I've kind of amalgated everything, uh, I come up with a, with a rating where I give it a, a number of stars and then um, a, a rating of, you know, uh, 7.75 or 8.25, what have you. It's actually pretty precise so it's to the hundredth <laughs> the hundredth decimal point i'm um, and for movies that you know have those uh twist endings the mind fucks those i take even more time because i like to go on reddit and read about all the different theories i'm trying to think what the last um such movie i saw with with multiple interpretations would be I can't think of too many, to be honest with you. I mean, most of the movies that I watched, with the exception of the Oscar contenders that I'm going to talk about later in this segment, uh, most of the movies I've watched in the last few months have been light rom-coms or, you know, animated films, something that after a long day of studying, I can kind of, or a long week of studying, rather, I can kind of uh, relax and not necessarily the same as watching a dark, heavy, you know, uh, psychological thriller that's going to consume a lot of my mental capacity. So... As I alluded to, let's kind of dive in, um, and I want to share with you first the most overrated movies that I've seen. Uh, the first one on my list, and, and you know, if if you've seen some of these, uh, great, you'll be able to know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I don't think you should bother, but just I'll, I'll try to, you know, provide some context with as much as I can remember about these films. Um, the first one of these was Midnight in Paris. And I actually got this film back when they still made DVDs. I got a DVD of this film from um, a girl I was dating at the time. And, 
you know, I never, I just, so the movie's about, essentially it's with Owen Wilson, who in general I don't really like very much, and it's about a an aspiring uh, screenwriter who's on vacation with his girlfriend, played by Rachel McAdams, and they're exploring the city, and I guess it's it's almost like national treasure. He's he goes back in time and starts, you know, reliving um, uh, what Paris was like in the nineteenth eighteenth century. It just it it felt a little campy to me. Um, I I again I don't think Owen Wilson is an easy uh, actor to connect with, and I was honestly I was a little bored. I, I was equal parts bored um, and confused. And I didn't when I finished the movie. I didn't really, I didn't really get it, um, which happens from time to time. Uh, but I was surprised that you know the movie had ninety five percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It was considered one of the best films of the year in twenty eleven. So I wasn't really sure what um, you know what people saw in that movie. Um, but definitely, you know, not something that I would watch twice. And that's a theme with all of these overrated films. Is I watched it once, and you would have to pay me to watch it again. Another overrated movie, and this is one of my more controversial opinions. I might have even mentioned this in the pilot episode of Nervous Habits, is Fight Club. And I would, I'm going to defend this to the death. I think Fight Club is an okay movie. Um, I do not think it's nearly as deserving as the cult status that it has. And it has that cult status for a number of reasons. I mean, back when Fight Club came out in the 90s, um, it wasn't an instant classic, right? Like, it took time for people to to connect with it and to, um, you know, for Brad Pitt's character to build a following. And of course, a lot's happened in the world in the last 20 years that's um, enabled Fight Club to be such such a sensation. But my problem with the movie is this. I think that the concept of Fight Club is amazing. You know, you, you have this underground society where there's no rules and men will be able to, you know, uh, release all their tension by beating the shit out of each other. Um and it eventually morphs into like like an anarchistic um, group of criminals and ne'er do wells, and I, I think that's a decent idea for concept, especially you know in, in in the '90s. But if you haven't seen Fight Club, I would recommend that you jump ahead a couple minutes. But there is a twist in Fight Club, and I don't think it was a necessary twist. Um, of course, as you later find out towards the end of the movie, Brad Pitt's character Tyler Durden wasn't real. He was a figment of Edward Norton's imagination. He was a hallucination, much like the twists in other movies that I'm not going to spoil for you. But, um, And I just don't think that the movie needed that twist to be compelling. I think that once that you know, once you found out that um, Brad, Pitt, Brad Pitt's character wasn't real, I think the movie took on a different tone and a different meaning. And all of the you know undertones about masculinity and um you know society and class and and what it means to be part of a group and part of a club i think all of that disappeared and it just became this movie about mental illness um and then towards the end when i guess he shot himself in the ear to get rid of brad pitt i didn't understand that um so all this is to say i think fight club had enormous potential um but again i think the movie is is and this happens some you know time to time with with, with films the movie thought it was or the director rather thought that he was being smarter than he actually was with the the twist ending, and I think that it it for a lot of guys, a lot of men, you know, their favorite films are are The Matrix, which is my is is my personal one of my favorite films, and Fight Club, and I just I didn't I didn't um I didn't see I didn't see the film as deserving of that cult status and. As I said, a lot of people at the time agreed with me, but in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, um, it's it's really gained a, a significant following. So that's that's at the top of my list for most overrated films. Then there's Requiem for a Dream. You guys, this movie was just an uncomfortable movie to watch. I remember I watched it uh, on the couch with my sister um, and the people we were dating at the time. And man, it is... It's a journey. Uh, the movie is it's about drug addiction and it's about how debilitating um, drugs can be on your mind and your body. And the way that the film is shot, you feel like you're tripping or you know you're 
the movie does a good job showing you what the protagonists are going through. Um, at one point, there's a there's a woman um, played by Ellen Bernstein who uh, b- becomes addicted to uppers, and she's hallucinating that she's on a game show, and and um, the refrigerator starts shaking, and the room is spinning, and and uh, you know I'll give the director props. This movie was also uh, back in I think it was the late '90s or the early 2000s, maybe uh, 2000, and they do a nice job of, for the time, shooting the movie in a way that's fresh and that's different. But it was just an uncomfortable viewing experience. And not uncomfortable in a way that is enjoyable, either during the movie experience or after. Uncomfortable in a way that's that's almost hard to watch. Um, and, you know, I can respect, unlike with a movie like Midnight Midnight in Paris, I can respect what they were trying to do. I think the message was was strong, but I mean, towards the end of the movie, and by the way, some of these this movie is twenty years old, so the statute of limitations on spoilers is is way up. Towards the end of the movie, uh, the main character becomes so addicted to heroin. I, I, if I remember correctly, he lands in prison, and you know his his arm. I don't know if he develops like gangrene or something, but he he his arm needs to be amputated. It's very graphic, very gruesome, and it just wasn't fun to watch. Um, so I, that's another movie. Much like with Fight Club, where it's a cult classic and people, you know, love to love to talk about it, and um, I think it's in some ways a manifestation of our curiosity um, and the fetishization of drug abuse and depiction in film. But it just it was it it was not a it was not a fun movie to watch, um, and yeah, I, I I it's another movie that I definitely would not rewatch. Um, then the next few are more recent, so <laughs> um, statute of limitations in these might not be up. Boyhood, uh, Boyhood may be one of my most overrated films, if not the most overrated film I've ever seen. That movie was that movie was was brutal. It was like watching a three hour you know uh, home home video, poorly shot by a suburban dad of you know of his of his wife and kid, and it's. The movie is one of those where the the premise and the concept was cooler than the execution. Oh, you know, let's let's film these people every year, film these children every year for eighteen years, and then we'll put it together, and you know, we'll win. And I mean, it was it was Oscar bait, and it's hard for me to to you know appreciate something that's that's so openly conspicuously created with the goal of winning an award. And it wasn't even you know, I, it's one thing if the movie was created to win an Oscar and then there was uh, some larger message that you could take away, or you know, it was it was the cinematography was was uh, transcendental. I don't think you can say that for Boyhood. I think it was it was boring. It was uneventful. There was not much of a plot. I can't really remember conflict. I think at one point the the father the, the husband leaves there might be a divorce it's it just it felt very ordinary and again like a lot of people this is just my opinion a lot of people f- found that refreshing about boyhood like oh you know here's here's something that I can relate to this is my everyday but I, I watch movies to escape I watch movies to get a fresh perspective on life I'm not looking to to just watch a movie of you know what what any what you know like the Truman Show of what anyone's life could be like on a day to day so I didn't see what all the hype was with that movie and for it to win I'm pretty sure it won Best Picture. No, it didn't win Best Picture, but for for it to even be nominated, I think I think it was ridiculous. That same year, if I'm not mistaken, uh, another movie, another extremely overrated movie, was Birdman. I watched Birdman on the plane coming back. I think it might have been from Israel or something, and I just didn't get it. I didn't like. What am I missing? What am I missing? It was Michael Keaton. Um, it was his career was coming to an end as an actor. Well, his character's career was coming to an end as an actor, and you know people were saying, oh, it mirrored his real life career, and there was this. The symmetry and it was ironic and Emma Stone was was angry and smoked a cigarette and she, an Oscar role. I, I I just did not. It's hard for me to even criticize that movie because I felt I fell asleep for for parts of it and I just I didn't I just didn't understand what the hype was with that movie and it's another one where if you look online, wow, it, you know ninety one percent on Rotten Tomatoes, um, and I just it didn't like I, Michael Keaton, much like Owen Wilson, is a character that or, or is an actor that I find hard to connect to. And I think with some of these, you know, critiques, you might be hearing that I, I there are certain actors and actresses that I find it easy to watch. Anything that um, Leonardo DiCaprio is in, anything that anything that Matthew McConaughey is in, Ryan Gosling, I will, you know, De Niro, I will happily, happily watch and appreciate the nuances of their performance. But Michael Keaton, Owen Wilson, it's just. I, 
there's something about the way that they portray these roles that's very off-putting. Um, I don't know. Bird, Birdman was was a was a struggle to get through, and wow, won, it won Best Picture that year. I think it, I think it beat out Boyhood. So, and, and then the last overrated film um, is The Big Short, and that movie was just confusing. You know, it's I give them credit for trying to you know trying to depict the financial crisis, and um, the director Adam McKay made a couple of pretty good movies um after that including vice uh which which was super entertaining but the the problem with with the big short was i think again they were a little they thought that they were being creative with these cutaways where you had mila kunis in a bathtub explaining what derivatives were but it was very disjointed it was hard to follow um and just tonally i wasn't like very clear was it a comedy was it a drama and i think with Adam McKay's movies, that's very much you know the chord that he hopes to strike. But yeah, just not not a not a big fan of um, the Big Short. So those are the most overrated movies, and just some some quick hits. Some of the worst movies that I've seen um, in the last ten years. These are from my <laughs> from the bottom of my list. I'll just rattle these off pretty quickly here. So there's a movie called I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. It was based off of I think Tuck, Tucker Max. I think. A book that I don't even know how I ended up watching that movie, but that was that was a struggle. Um, the campaign that might have also been Adam McKay. Um, these are, by the way, a lot of these movies are just movies I fell asleep during. So the longest week was terrible. That, if this was the last movie on the face of the earth, I mean, I don't know, guys. It's a movie. It's with um, Jason Bateman in his you know new role, trying to be a serious actor after Ozark. But it's a it's a weird it's a weird it's. I, oh God! Um, the longest week, so don't see that. The watch, I don't even remember that what that movie is. The house bunny, um, bad teacher, you again. Some of these movies were so bad, I don't even remember. They, they weren't even good enough to be memorable. Idiocracy is is another one that, that's kind of overrated. I like the only redeeming quality about that movie is um at one point. So so it's a futuristic society where where the average intelligence of humans has somehow gone down so much that this this one guy played by Luke Wilson gets transported there and, and he becomes the smartest person. The only redeeming quality about that movie was at one point they asked the guy his his name and he says not sure. So so everyone calls him not sure. I I, I thought that was kind. Of, but I, other than that, I like I really I I really did not see the um. Did not get that get that movie. It was it was it was hard to watch, um, and it's also just in general watching these these movies from these comedies from fifteen twenty years ago. It's almost like humor has changed so much in the last you know fifteen twenty years. So so it's it's hard. It's very hard for me to. I think almost the standards for what's funny has gone up so much that you don't you don't even realize that. I don't even know. I I, I don't I don't know what I'm trying to say, guys. It's it's getting late, and I'm. <laughs> I'm going through these movies with you. The Darkest Hour was a movie at Winston Churchill. Christian Bell um, got a ton of awards for that. I tried to watch it with my mom. It was just appallingly boring. Friend Request, that was bad. Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Tom Hanks is another guy that um, I can't I can't stand to watch him. He's, you know, if I were to do like an overrated actors list, I mean, aside from Forrest Gump, what I mean, what was he in Saving Private Ryan? Like he hasn't really had any career defining roles. It's just he's he's been such a force in the industry for so many years, much like Meryl Streep, that he gets all the accolades. But it's like really, last two, and I might have even mentioned these in episode fourteen. Come to think of it, but there's a movie called Enter the Void, which similar to Requiem for a Dream depicts um, what you know. It's like a guy dies from overdosing on DMT, and the whole movie is his journey to the afterlife. Sounds really cool. Um, but it was a very uncomfortable viewing experience um, and not something I'll watch again. And also kind of gross. I, 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 can't, I can't really explain it. It's like they – yeah. It, I, I, that's a bad – and then downsizing was uh, – wow. Wow. Yeah. No words. No words. Um, if you guys – don't believe me on any of the. How about this? How about this? How about this? Let's say you don't trust my judgment on movies. Let's say you're, you're listening right now and you're like, yeah, this guy doesn't like Fight Club. <laughs> what does he know? Just watch Downsizing, and I can guarantee you, I promise you guys, you'll trust my judgment after you see that. I think you'll probably t- turn it off like 20 minutes in. So while I'm on the topic of movies, last kind of mini segment I want to do here is I want to talk about the Oscars. 
So every year, I like to predict the winners of the Best Picture category. I try to watch all the films that were nominated, which was frustrating because after the the Dark Knight's omission a couple years ago, uh, or a couple, like a decade ago, they increased the category Best Picture to 10. So now it's, you know, I got my work cut out for me trying to watch 10 films um, by the time the Oscars roll around. But I do try to predict, you know, who I think will win and who I think should win. So last year, I think back in Episode 4, I successfully predicted the Green Book would win Best Picture. If you go back and listen, by the way, you can uh, you can check the date stamp. And let's see if I can go two for two. Now, the only issue with this is when I released this podcast episode in probably probably like mid late February, the Oscars will already have taken place. So I guess you're just gonna have to trust me, guys. I mean, if if I if I get this wrong, <laughs> you'll know, you'll know for sure that. You know, I, I predicted that I recorded this ahead of time. If I get it right, just, you know, just trust me. Just trust me. I'm listening to this. I'm recording this right now at the end of January. Um, so <laughs> that I don't, you know, I'm not not trying to, um, you know, cheat a little bit here. So 2019 was an incredible year for film. Maybe one of the best film years we've had in a long time. And of course, it coincided with me being in law school. So I, I haven't had the chance to see as many of these films as I would have liked. But, you know, really... If you look across genres, I mean, there have been so many amazing films. If you look, for example, the superhero saga, I, which maybe you think, you know, uh, maybe you agree with Martin, Martin Scorsese that that's not real art and akin to visiting an amusement park, but you had Avengers Endgame and Spider-Man Far From Home and uh, Joker, which, you know, kind of fits into a number of categories. For animated films, you had uh, Toy Story 4 and Frozen 2 and, of course, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, which was the biggest disappointment of the year, if you ask me. I mean, I don't even have to get into that. Um, and then, you know, you had movies like The Irishman and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Marriage Story and Ad Astra and Cut Gems, Parasite, The Souvenir, The Lighthouse, um, Rocket Man, Little Women, Lives, uh, Knives Out. Now, I haven't seen uh, most, I haven't seen many of these films, but of these, you know, nine were nominated for uh, Best Picture. I think only nine this year, not ten. Um, including, so four of the movies nominated for Best Picture I haven't seen yet. I'm going to try to see a couple more before the Oscars um, in a week or two. But uh, the ones that I haven't seen were 1917, which I've heard very, very good things about, Ford versus Far- Ferrari, uh, Dojo Rabbit, and Little Woman. Little Women. So it's, it's many women. It's not just <laughs> one little woman. Um, so none of those I've seen, but the remaining five that I have seen, Joker, Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, That's a, by the way, that's a mouthful, The Irishman, and Marriage Story, those are all um, Oscar juggernauts. So I, I honestly, just based on what I've been reading, you know, because I like to, as I mentioned earlier, I like to, you know, read the critical analysis of these things. The only movie that I haven't seen that I think stands a chance of winning Best Picture is 1917. Um but it's pretty likely that the best picture is going to be amongst that group of five. Joker, Parasite, O-U-A-T-I-H, The Irishman, and Marriage Story. I think we can write off Marriage Story right away. Um, there is a 0% chance or you know, maybe like 0.05 or whatever percent chance that film wins best picture. No, don't get me wrong. I was entertained. Um, I mean, I had to watch it. It's funny. I had to watch it like three separate times because – I watched it with my sister and then she fell asleep and I watched it with a friend and she fell asleep. So um, it was entertaining. I think that Adam Driver's come a long way. I mean, you know, he really broke out as Kylo Ren and now he's got with Patterson and um, Marriage Story and he's got these serious dramatic roles and and he killed it. Um, Scar Joe was a little disappointing though, uh, but that might have just been how her character was written. But be that as it may, I don't see a path to victory for Marriage Story considering the field. Maybe in a different year, it might be an, another story, but uh, this year there's, there's just too, too many films for you know movie about uh, you know messy divorce between two upper class you know California. It, it, I, I just don't see it. And as much as I love Martin Scorsese, I, I don't see The Irishman winning either. I would watch anything that Scorsese has done. If you've listened to the to you know episodes I've done um, on movies. You'll know that all my favorite films, from Taxi Driver to King of Comedy to Goodfellas Casino, The Departed, Shutter Island, The Aviator, they're all Scorsese movies. So I, that guy could film, you know, water boiling, and, and I would I would pay top dollar to watch that. But The Irishman for me felt way too long and too drawn out, and I I know what he was doing. I know what he was trying to do. He's trying to recreate the magic of Goodfellas with the dialogue and the you know the tension and 
and the you know unexpected murder of, of a key character. I, I get all that, but it didn't feel like he was doing anything new. Now, don't get me wrong. The performances were stellar. Pesci, Joe Pesci came out of retirement for this movie. He he was he was phenomenal, one of his best roles. Pacino and De Niro were very good. I I don't think, especially for De Niro, I, I think he's he's been better in, in you know uh, in, in a lot of Scorsese's, uh, Scorsese's other movies. But I just I think there's a chance that the Irishman wins. Um, just because of the prominence of the cast and the director, but. I pers- it w- personally was not one of my favorite movies of the year, and and as I said, it's you know it's tough for me to say that um, because I wa- I really wanted to like it. It was just long. Now that leaves my personal three favorite films from 2019, which are Joker, Parasite, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> I actually really believe that the best picture will be one of these three. I think that. These might be the top three vote getters. Um, so let, let's chat about it for a moment. Joker was phenomenal. And I think it's a, a travesty for people to write off Joker as a superhero movie. It wasn't the, – the movie should, should not have been called Joker. It should have been called um, – what the hell was his name? Arthur. That, the movie should have been called Arthur because I think when you call it Joker, you're writing – you're essentially sequestering this movie into a category of – DC Comics, you know, it's it's the the um, origin story for Heath Ledger's Joker. It, 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 that wasn't that wasn't what the movie was, and I think a lot of people didn't get that. I think the movie was was highly well received, critically acclaimed, but it was also controversial, and that's because some people wrote it off as a comic book movie when, in actuality, it was a case study on the deterioration of a person's mind and how someone. Someone with a good heart, someone that was, you know, making children laugh on the bus and taking care of his mom and, you know, how someone could actually become insane. And there are so many iconic scenes from that movie that I think we're going to look back on in 20, 30 years and, and really appreciate. Um, you know, for example, the, the scene where he's um, walking down the steps and, and that flamboyant suit and the police are, are looking down at him and they got that song. I might just, I might just, you know what I might do? I might just, instead of having me sing that, I might just put the, uh, <laughs> put the, put the song in there. But then they have the scene where, you know, he's sitting with De Niro and, and De Niro finds out that he, you know, um, that he's behind the murders and, and he just goes, you know, I thought it was funny. And he eventually, I'm not going to ruin the movie. But, so after watching the movie, I spent hours reading online about the nuances of Phoenix's performance. And, you know, I talked to my sister, Holly, who's obviously a, a doctoral student um, in clinical psychology, and she found his performance to be exceedingly realistic for people who had schizophrenic tendencies. So, you know, I, I think that Joaquin Phoenix is a shoo-in for um, best actor, one of the best performances I've ever, I've ever seen. And the breakdowns, the laughing, the mania, it, it was unreal. Uh, but... I'm not confident that the Academy would give what is technically classified as a superhero movie best picture, especially one that's as controversial as this was. Now, I don't think the controversy is warranted. I understand that people were concerned, especially after um, the shootings in Aurora, Colorado with The Dark Knight Rises several years ago. Um, They were concerned that the movie would inspire copycat murderers and, you know, none of that came to fruition. Um, Maybe if if it did, we'd be having a different conversation, but I do think that kind of imposes a little bit of a stigma on on the film i would say there's maybe a 25 percent chance that joker wins now once upon a time in hollywood for me i think tarantino and scorsese this year had the same goals in returning to their roots in taking something that was very successful like an inglorious bastards or django and chain in the case of tarantino um and and you know, injecting a little with a little newness, a little creativity, and that's what Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was. It was different. It was novel, but it stayed true to who Tarantino is as a filmmaker um, from start to finish. I mean, th- this was his best film in years, probably probably since um, *Glorious Bastards*. Uh, you know, you couldn't take your eyes away, and and obviously, uh, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio are. Com- like the most watchable actors on the face of the earth. And Brad Pitt in particular really brought it. Um, 
So in any other year, you know, I might pick once upon a time in Hollywood to, be, to win Best Picture. I mean, the music, the cinematography, the set design, the performances, the writing was so tight. And then, of course, in typical Tarantino fashion, the last, you know, 10, 15 minutes where you just have this, this I mean, you saw it in The Hateful Eight, too, um, this, like, extremely, you know, intense climax where all of the separate plot threads come together, um, and it's it was it was incredible. But I don't so so, so I think Once Upon a Time Hollywood has a really good chance of winning. But I think there are two reasons why it won't win. Um, number one is Parasite, which I'll tell you about in a moment. I think was the superior movie in most respects. And number two. Mr. Tarantino is not exactly the most liked person in the Academy, amongst the Academy. Uh, He hasn't received the Best Picture Award before, and I just don't know if they're going to recognize him with that distinction. So I don't know that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood will win. I give them maybe a 30% chance that that happens. And last but not least, let's talk about Parasite. Parasite, 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 Parasite. When a movie's as hyped up as Parasite was, it's it's hard for it to live up to your expectations. I mean, the film, last check, I, I think it had a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes, and virtually everyone I know who had seen it had raved about it. I mean, I I, I can't even remember the last time a movie was, was as, um, you know, universally adulated as Parasite was. Now, the movie's entirely in Korean, so you need to watch it with English subtitles. And I remember when people were telling me about the film, I was intrigued by the fact that a film that wasn't in English was so popular in America. Because let's be honest, we don't exactly we don't exactly roll out the red carpet for um you know foreign films for the most part. So I, I had my doubts, and I also you know I wasn't sure that I could enjoy a movie in another language just because it, it's so difficult to follow the plot when you can't when you don't know what they're saying when you're you know locked into the subtitles. But I will admit that Parasite. Parasite was so compelling that I didn't even realize they were speaking Korean for most of the movie. I watched it once with one of my friends with with my friends in Boston uh, over break, and I I mean it was we all agreed it was you know one of the best films we've seen in in a long 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 time. First of all, the cinematography and how the how the film was shot and edited was breathtaking. It was a work of art, and even you know film students are going to watch the way that the director. Um, uh, uh, Jun Ho Bang, you know, cut from scene to scene, and and the way that he integrated different um, different shots, how he put them together, the entire thing was just in another league. I mean, this this director, this is going to be the film that puts him over the top. People are going to go back and watch all the other movies that he's made, and the story was really captivating too. Um, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you what it's about because. When I went on, so when I went on YouTube to watch the trailer, as I usually do for these movies, the first comment was, "Do not watch the trailer. You know, you should go in absolutely blind." Um, the words of Frank Costanza, "I like to go in fresh." Uh, <laughs> so I felt reverence there, but um, I mean, even if you do watch the trailer, though, it doesn't doesn't give anything away. I you know I expected a horror movie, and then once it started, I thought it was a thriller, and then it ended up being neither. But you know, I watched it a second time with my friend last week, and it was just as good. So I do think, in a perfect world, if I was voting, Parasite should win Best Picture for for 2019, um, and it would be the first ever foreign film to win Best Picture at the Oscars. Uh, it's reminiscent when uh, when The Artist won back in 2012. I want to say um, just just how groundbreaking that was. So I, you know, do I trust the Academy will make the right call? Maybe. Um, I'd say it's about 40% chance that that happens. So Joker, 25% chance. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 30% chance. 40% chance Parasite, meaning 5% chance it's something else like 1917. And like I said, we will see if I'm right. You got to listen, you know, in uh, (laughs) at the end of February and see if I predicted the future if I was dead wrong. Maybe one of these, like, maybe little little woman, singular woman um, uh, ended up winning, (laughs) which which would show how much I know. So this has been an action-packed, or not action, this has been a content-packed episode of Nervous Habits. Let's kind of review. So just to kind of refresh your memory, uh, memory here, um, we talked about the 
pro- the wet problem in Western society of consumption, how thanks to you know social media and streaming, we're constantly inundating our mind with stimuli and not really creating anything anymore. Um, talked about the virtues of reflection, meditation, and finding ways to produce instead of just consuming. Um, we talked about the uh, problem uh, for on the macro level for society of potentially the next Steve Jobs or Bill Gates having his, his head buried in an iPhone and um, Elon Musk's argument uh, for why innovation um, could be harmed in the near future. We also looked at the uh, Harvard Review studies on why innovation is trailing down, the fishing out, cherry picking uh, effect, why uh, corporations R&D um, are uh, taking a hit even though there's more resources. And we talked about the failure of patent to properly incentivize people. Um, and then a couple suggestions on what you could be doing to motivate yourself to produce more instead of just consuming all the time. Um, and then we went through some of the most overrated films, in my opinion, um, of the last 10, 15 years, including <laughs> Fight Club um, and Boyhood and Birdman, as well as the worst movies I've seen and my Oscar predictions, Joker, Once Upon a Time, and um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, rather, not Once Upon a Time anywhere, and uh, Parasite. So make sure you see those if you haven't. Um, next week, I am going to be joined at long last with two of my good friends from law school. And we're going to be discussing the value of a legal education, whether or not it is worth, worth the enormous investment um, that it entails, and whether the universally loathed grading system in law school has any merits or if it should be modified or extinguished altogether. That's coming up next on Nervous Habits. Guys, thank you so much for consuming <laughs> this podcast of Nervous Habits. Um, it's been a blast being here with you for the past hour and 15 minutes or so. Uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on YouTube, just search Nervous Habits Podcast, and you can message us, um, message me rather, on Gmail, Nervous Habits Podcast at gmail.com, Nervous Habits Podcast at gmail.com. If you have any objections to my new movie reviews, if you have any movies you think I should see, or if you disagree, um, or maybe we're on the same page about everything and <laughs> you want to just tell me you agree, just shoot me an email or a message on Twitter or Instagram. Um, and remember, when you're watching Netflix, and it says at the bottom, next episode will start in 10 seconds. Turn your computer off and pick up a pen and paper. Stay nervous, guys.